And both of these men who are dying, they, they speak to Christ as they are hanging from their own cross, about to die. And as they approach death, both of them reveal a certain attitude towards the Lord. These two criminals crucified with Christ show us two different attitudes or, or approaches to our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see the way of unbelief, and we see the way of faith. And this event recorded for us in Scripture is also serves as a call to us to live and die in the way of faith. So as I preach you God's word, this Good Friday morning from Luke 23, I summarize the message as follows. Two dying men ask for salvation from the dying Christ. And in this event, we'll see, uh, we'll see, first of all, deliverance demanded, and we'll look at then remembrance requested, and finally, paradise promised. Now, our reading from Luke 23 this morning, the entire passage we read, it's filled with kingship themes. It keeps popping up throughout this passage. The soldiers who crucified Jesus mocked him, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Luke also notes that there was an inscription above him that which read, This is the king of the Jews. And the words of the Jewish rulers were similar. They mocked him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And, and that title, the chosen one referred to the promised son of David who would reign over God's people forever. What is obvious from all these things I mentioned from Luke 23 so far is that even though there are, there are, there are these kingship themes, no one seems to recognize Jesus as the true king. They think that he is a charlatan false Messiah, failure king. What about these two men crucified with our Lord? Will they recognize Christ for who He truly is? Remember, these men are dying. This is their, la their last opportunity before death. And the Savior of the world is right in front of them, right beside them, crucified with them. Will they recognize Christ? Will they put their faith in Him for their eternal salvation? Or will they reject Him like the others standing around Christ mocking Him and be lost forever? Well, the first criminal... He joined with the Jewish rulers and with the Roman soldiers. He railed at Jesus. Or as the text literally says, he blasphemed him. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. There's a, a lot to unpack in just this, these short few words. First of all, it seems this man knew something of Jesus before this. Christ had become well-known throughout Israel through his, his teaching and his preaching. 
And maybe this man had heard Christ speak before. And it could very well be that he had even witnessed one of Jesus' miracles. Or in the least had heard about them. Perhaps at one point this criminal speculated that others had done that perhaps Jesus was the Christ. But now he's hanging on a cross, both this man and the Lord Jesus. And what does he do now? He blasphemes him. He rejects him. In his bitterness, in his suffering, he angrily lashes out at the Lord. Listen to his, his words again. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Right? He demands deliverance from the Lord. But it's not true repentance. In his pride, he can't bring himself to acknowledge his own sin. In his selfishness, all he wants is to save his own skin. In his fury, he rejects Christ. See, what is he after? All that he wants from the Lord is relief from his present suffering. But he has no desire to be made right with God. And this is the mindset of somebody in unbelief. It's a picture of an unregenerate mind. It's the attitude of refusing to let go of pride. A decision to harden oneself in anger at God. And the mindset of unbelief is to demand that God must serve us instead of the other way around. And the mindset of sin is to want freedom only from suffering, but not freedom from sin. And this is the mindset of the first criminal on the cross. He only wants immediate relief from his suffering. He demands Christ give it to him. But what would happen if the Lord Jesus granted him his request? Would he then turn from his sin and unbelief and serve God and, and Christ? No. He would go on living his old life of sin. And that's what so ha often happens in this world. People might cry out for relief in a time when they're going through suffering, and then when God gives it, they, they harden their hearts again. Right? Think only of, of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. He cried out for relief, the Lord gave it to him, and then he hardened his heart again when things were going better for him. It's the same attitude, it's the same heart of unbelief, and, and we need to guard against this attitude in our own hearts as well. We should ask ourselves, what do we want from God? Do we want a relationship with Him? Do we acknowledge our sin to Him and humbly ask for forgiveness? Or do we just want relief from suffering without turning to God at all? 
Pride and anger can easily creep into our hearts in the midst of suffering. And we might be tempted to harden our hearts towards God as this criminal did. Maybe lash out in anger. This criminal, he also warns us of another danger. Sometimes we might be tempted to hold on to a life of sin, thinking that we can turn to God at the last moment. Right? The reasoning goes, no, I don't, I don't want to turn from my sin right now. I'll hold on to it a while longer, and, and I'll repent later. We can easily give in to that way of thinking. And some of that reasoning might be based on the second criminal from our text. As, as we will see later on, he did turn right before death. But not only is this reasoning a great sin, it's also a terrible mistake. It fails to grapple with the hardening effect of sin. The book of Hebrews warns us against a hardened heart brought about by the deceitfulness of sin. And if we hold on to a life of sin thinking that we'll just repent sometime later in the future, we are testing the Holy Spirit. You see, when the time comes to repent before death, even if we get that chance, our hearts will continue on the same path. That we have chosen. See, this, this reasoning fails to reckon with the unbelief and the sin of the first criminal. He had one last chance to repent and believe before he died, but he refused. And it's incredibly sad. The Savior of the world is right in front of him. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but He doesn't want it. And now He faces the consequences of His sin and unbelief for all eternity. And one thing that might hinder the man is the fact that he refuses to believe in a crucified Savior. Remember, kingship themes run throughout this passage in Luke and Jesus is mocked by many because in their minds he's a false king. And they think the fact that he hangs from the cross is proof of this. How could he be a king? And that's what 1 Corinthians 1 is talking about when it talks about the offense of the cross. It says the, the message of the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Human pride refuses to acknowledge the need for someone so weak and an event so gruesome to save them from their sins. May we be on guard against that also. Brings us to our next point. And so, the first criminal, he demanded deliverance from Christ, just deliverance from his present suffering. But in response to his demand, the second criminal rebuked him. He said to him, Do you not fear God, 
since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now, this is a different response than the first criminal. Look at his humble attitude. Don't you fear God, he says. This man has done nothing wrong. We are getting what we deserve. And this is the humility we need in the face of God's judgment. Right? This, the crucifixion of these two men and, and Jesus Christ, in addition, is indeed a picture of God's just judgment on sinners. This is His punishment on sin. This is the curse that they are receiving. And sometimes we might have a difficulty comprehending it. It is severe. But in light of God's just judgment, may we never harden ourselves. Instead, let us humble ourselves, as this man did. This is what our sins deserve. Why harden ourselves in pride and unbelief? Let us turn to God in humility and repentance. You see, before we are ready to receive Christ as Savior, we need to know our sin and to humbly confess it. That's why the first criminal refused to put his faith in Christ. And the cross of Christ will remain foolishness to us until we acknowledge our own sin. Well, this second criminal, he did acknowledge his sin, and so he, he realizes he can make no demand on Christ. The first criminal demanded deliverance. The second criminal knew his own sin, and so he only makes a, a humble request. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this is amazing faith. Consider everything that this request shows. He believed, first of all, of life after death. He knew that there would be life going on after his physical death. And what's more, the second criminal also put his faith in a dying man. By all appearances, Jesus looked helpless to do anything for the second criminal. Christ is hanging from a cross in agony. He cannot do anything. Human, humanly speaking, what could he do? And it seems like this second criminal is making a foolish request. But that's not the case through the eyes of faith. Through faith, we see that it's by dying on a cross that Jesus has the power to save. And this is the other side of 1 Corinthians 1. There it says, Yes, the cross of Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing, as it was for the first criminal. But for those who believe, it is the power of God for salvation. And this is what Jesus' crucifixion was to the second man. The power of God for his salvation. And so we put his hope in him, Jesus, remember me. The final aspect of this man's faith is that he rightly believed Jesus to be the true king. 
Remember, there's a, a kingship re- theme running throughout this passage. People mock Jesus for claiming to be a king. No one recognizes that he is indeed this king. But this second criminal, he does, as no one else does. And again, by, by human reasoning, by all appearances, the last thing Jesus was going to do was to become a king. He looks so unkinglike, hanging from a cross. How was he going to become king when he's so close to death? But this second man recognizes that the cross was not the end for our Lord Jesus. He would yet be crowned king by God. Jesus would still rule over all. And what's all the more astounding about this is that this second man had previously insulted Christ also. And we know this from Matthew's gospel. Matthew 27 verse 44 points out that both criminals at one point reviled Christ from the cross, both of them. And it's important to see this. This really was a last-minute deathbed conversion. Now, at some point while hanging on the cross, this man's heart was changed. He suddenly understood who, who Jesus truly was. Now, in the first point, I emphasize that it's, it's important not to save repentance for later, where we say, I'll just hold on to sin and repent at the last moment like this criminal. And indeed, we must put that attitude away. But on the other hand, we can rejoice in the fact that this, this second criminal was saved right at the nick of time. He had lived a life of sin, but he was changed right at the end. And in this, we take hope also for those who, who currently remain in unbelief and sin. Or for those who by all appearances remained in unbelief to the point of death. God can save someone at the last moment. And so we continue to pray for those who presently refuse to repent and believe. We pray that God will yet change their hearts as He changed this man's heart while on the cross. Now we might wonder what... What changed for this man? Why did he insult Christ at first, as we see from Matthew's gospel, but here he believes? Well, of course, he only believed by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit overpowered his hardness of heart. He gave him new eyes and a new heart. But we still might wonder, what, what suddenly made things click? Of course, we can't know for sure. But perhaps this man, being a Jew who would have been familiar with the Scriptures, perhaps he saw Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Jesus' death. Think of what we sang from Psalm 22 earlier. In that psalm, David speaks of his troubles, and he prophetically speaks about the sufferings of Christ. And there he says, "...they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots." This is the very thing the soldiers did in our reading from Luke 23, even before this second criminal's eyes. 
And not only that, Psalm 22 says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Indeed, this is what is happening right before the eyes of the second criminal. The suffering described in Psalm 22 fits perfectly with Christ's suffering on the cross. And it could be that the Holy Spirit brought to remembrance these or other words from the Old Testament, and that He impressed them upon this man's mind and heart that the Lord Jesus was fulfilling these very things. Whatever the case may be, he now saw with the eyes of faith that Jesus, yes, he was the Christ. And that faith in Jesus was enough for his salvation. He turned to the Lord and and was saved. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this is true saving faith on display. An acknowledgement of sin, a recognition of Jesus Christ as a Savior, and putting faith in Him for salvation. You know, at times we might wonder, you know, how do I know I have true saving faith, and what does it look like? Well, this second criminal shows us what it looks like. Humbly confess your sin. Recognize Jesus as King and Savior and trust in Him for salvation. That is true faith. Believe in Jesus Christ like this man did and you will be saved, as we'll also see in our last point. Well, again, as I've mentioned, there are, there are kingship themes running through this passage of Luke. The second criminal said to Christ, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's asking for a pardon from the king. He's asking Christ to show kindness to him when he's finally on the throne. We see similar things in the the Old Testament. Old Testament kings sometimes remembered certain people, showing them favor upon taking the throne. Think of King David, who remembered the house of Jonathan when he took the throne. He did this by having Mephibosheth, one of Jonathan's descendants, at his, one from John, or Jonathan's household, from his, at his own house. Think of King Solomon. Before he became king, Solomon's father David gave him some final instructions. He said to him, show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite. Let him be among those who eat at your table, for so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. Right? Remember them when you come into your kingdom. Think also of Joseph in the book of Genesis. He interpreted the dream of the chief cupbearer. And right before he was about to return to Pharaoh, Joseph asked the cupbearer, Remember me when you come before Pharaoh. Right? Remember me. So Joseph asked the cupbearer to remember him when the cupbearer came before the king. But what did Pharaoh's cupbearer do? Cupbearer do? Well, he forgot how painful that must have been for Joseph. But in a similar way, this criminal asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom. And would the Lord Jesus forget him? Leaving him to languish like Joseph in prison? No. Not at all. 
In fact, Christ Jesus said to the criminal, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. What a beautiful promise. You will be with me in paradise today. So intriguing that Christ uses the word paradise here. You might think he would have said, today you will be with me in heaven. But he chooses the word paradise, and that's significant. The Greek word for paradise is used to describe the Garden of Eden in in other places. Genesis 2 says that God made a garden in Eden. The Greek Old Testament in the time of Christ refers to it as a paradise in Eden. And in this we can see that kingship theme coming back again. God had placed Adam in the garden or a paradise of Eden And God made Adam king in that paradise and over all creation, but he failed. And Christ Jesus is the second or the last Adam. And as a righteous king, he would restore what was lost through the first Adam. That's also why this King Jesus, whom most were reviling and rejecting, was on the cross. So that he could restore what was lost. He was paying for the sins of his people committed through the first Adam. He was taking upon himself a curse brought upon the earth because of our sin in Adam. And he was removing sin to make paradise accessible for sinners again. And it's by this humble righteous obedience unto death that qualifies Christ to be this king. You see, the chief priests, the rulers, they mocked Christ. If you're the chosen one, save yourself. Remember the words chosen one.
Today you will be with me in paradise. The man's suffering was almost over. And then he would enter into eternal joy. Salvation is declared immediately. The day was almost gone. And what joy for him, even in the pain of the cross. Yes, he was in agony, but this criminal could still have joy. This is the beauty of salvation. He had lived a life of sin. He acknowledged himself that all he deserved was his own cross, forsaken by God. He made no offers to Christ. He put no demands on him, but he humbly asked Jesus to remember him, and the Lord Jesus promised him paradise. Salvation is a gift, beloved. It's not by our works, it's by the work of Christ. His humble request to Christ showed his changed heart in life. But at the end of the day, he was saved by God's grace, and so are we. So the message is clear. What can we do but respond to Christ in the same way as this man did? This is the way of eternal salvation. It's free for us. It's paid for by Christ. Acknowledge your sin. Recognize Christ. Put your faith in him, and you will be in paradise. Amen. Let's now respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing together hymn three, the stanzas three, four, and five.